This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. Don't strive for perfection, which kills excellent and leads to procrastination. Strive for success, not perfection. Chase happiness, not money. Valerie Atelis interviews Dr. Alan Weiss, the author of Your Legacy is Now. Life is not a search for meaning from others. It's the creation of meaning for yourself. Alan Weiss, PhD, is a consultant, speaker, and best-selling author. Described by the New York Post as one of the most highly regarded independent consultants in America, his consulting firm, Summit Consulting Group, Inc., has attracted clients such as Merck, Hewlett-Packard, GE, Mercedes-Benz, and more than 500 leading organizations. He is the author of more than 60 books, many of which have been included in university curricula and translated into 15 languages. Meet Dr. Allen at allenweiss.com. Here's the interview with Dr. Alan Weiss. In your own words, who is Dr. Alan Weiss? Well, he's someone who's trying to help people... uh, uh, achieve uh, meaning in their life and in their work and in their relationships. Somebody who learns more than anybody else by doing that. It's interesting. I think that uh, coaching other people enriches you. Would you say that this is uh, gives your life meaning or purpose? What do you do now, helping others? Well, yes, I think what you decide to do has to give you life meaning and purpose if you're going to be good at it, as well as other things. You know, the relationships you have give you a life purpose. The experiences that you have give you life purpose. It's, you know, it's an alchemy of a lot of different things. What is your idea of life? What is life to you? It's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to experience. You know, we live with great mystery. We don't know what happens uh, after we die. We don't know what the universe is like. We don't even know what's at the bottom of the oceans. And we, we pretend to do, but we know very little. So for me, life's, a, life's an opportunity to learn and to grow and to experience. What is your idea of success? What is to be successful today? I think success is about making contributions. I think success is about discretionary time. You know, it's not about money. Money's helpful, but it's fuel. And I I really don't think that we have any right to consume wealth or consume happiness without creating wealth and happiness. Mm. So, you know, I think success Mm. is not just reaching your own goals. Success is helping other people reach their goals. You mentioned in your book something interesting that I had to bring to the first uh, section of the interview. You say, be comfortable being spiritual towards the end. So talk to me about your idea, your understanding of spirituality and what is to be spiritual. 
Well, I don't equate spirituality with uh, religion. I happen to be a person of faith, but I think that people can be spiritual without being religious, and I think uh, many religious people aren't spiritual. So my definition of spiritual is being in touch with the world around you, being in touch with nature, taking lessons from what's around you. Instead of being self-absorbed, as so many people are, it's rather being very aware of what's going on around you and being self-aware as well. So uh, I learn every day from what I see around me and I observe what's around me. But, you know, the problem is, Valerie, is a lot of people look forward and dread and they look back and regret. They should be looking around in awareness. And with that in mind, I'll ask you just an open question about living this meaningful life. What does it look like to you? You probably have been talking about that, but... Talk to me for a moment about this idea we have, the leading this meaningful life. What does it look like exactly? Well, life is not a search for meaning. Uh, life is the, about the creation of meaning. And so I think as we go forward, you know, every day there's a, a new page written in our book, metaphorically. And the question is, is the page the same as the day before? Or is it blank? Or is it boring? Or is someone else writing it? Oh, I think a meaning every day is about what you create for yourself, what you create for others, and every day is an advance. Every day is an improvement. I know people, and so do the listeners, who retired, you know, at 65 or whenever, and they're basically sitting around waiting to die. Right. I don't understand the whole concept. I think we have to move forward every day, and, that, and that's how we make, not only, that's not only how we make a life for ourselves, but how we contribute. I agree, yes. That's a a very interesting message, and I agree. And I do see that happening, too, to people around me who choose to do nothing. But in a way, even uh, that thought, uh, we need to kind of be careful because we got to go back to the mystery you speak of. We don't know. Like, judging is so easy, isn't it? But to judge implies that we know everything, the past, that we know the invisible world, the future, past lives, everything. Any judgment implies that. Well, judgment gets a bad rap. I mean, a lot of people say, you be so judgmental. We make judgments every day. We make judgments about when we want to go to the gym, about what traffic pattern to take. We make judgments about who we want to help and so forth. Judgments are a part of life. Being judgmental, that is condemning people, uh, that's not a good habit to be in. However, uh, I think there's, there's empirical evidence that can tell you this person's life is not a contributing life. This person's life is a highly contributing life. So I don't like it when people say, don't be so judgmental, don't be so judging. Uh, it depends what conclusions you're reaching and whether the empirical evidence supports it. Yeah, um, I I understand what you're trying to say that, yeah, we do... Of course, yeah, the mind automatically does that. It, that's what it's here for, to judge, discriminate, separate. It's just that choosing, I guess I coming from my perspective and perhaps the people that I speak uh, on this podcast, we come from a place of understanding more than judgment. Yeah, the judgment might be there, but then we try to look closer and address our own thoughts about what's happening or other people in a kind way. And that makes a big difference. That's a lofty goal, but the fact is that some behavior uh, is, by any rational standard, uh, inappropriate and bad. And so if you take just a a silly example, someone who gets to the bottom of an escalator and stops, or someone who's leaving a crowded movie theater and decides to discuss the show in the exit doors, 
you know, that's not intelligent behavior. Speeding on the highway at 100 miles an hour is not intelligent behavior. And I don't look upon that with any kindness or understanding. I think people who make innocent errors and people who, for whatever reason, are put in awkward positions by others, that you look at with kindness and understanding. I think that we need tough love. Uh, for example, you know, sympathy is feeling sorry for people. Empathy is understanding how they feel. And I think that tough love is empathy without the sympathy. And some people need to be confronted. You know, I've seen so many people who did a poor job and everybody's telling them they did a great job because they think that'll boost their confidence. But the fact is they're being lied to and people progress when they're told the truth. I absolutely yeah, understand where you're coming from with that comment. Yes. Doing something about it. Of course, yeah, we don't want to see injustice or unfairness and just let it pass. That doesn't make sense. I guess it's, um, my comment comes from a space of inner peace. When you speak of meaning of life, finding purpose and leaving a legacy, what comes to me, it's inner peace. If you can hold everything with calm and patience, you may not call love, but with calm and equanimity, then, yeah, that to me seems like a very good place to be, a meaningful place to exist. Well, I can't argue with that, but I do think that there are times when you're creating meaning in life and you're happy and you're positive, but there are calls for action. Uh, there are things that create healthy outrage, you know, bias and prejudice create healthy outrage. Uh, and I think that uh, the, it's, that's the antithesis at that moment of calm and peace. Sometimes you have to take action. Yes. No. Oh, of course. Yeah. Inner peace is just implies that you are in a space where you can see with clarity. So it's much easier to take action, too. It's easier to take the right actions, actually, if there's such a thing as the right action. Perhaps a better choice, make better choices in life. So 2020 has been this very interesting time of challenges and change. For you, what insights have you gained, Alan? Well, I think that it's marvelous how resilient we are. You know, it's marvelous how people can accommodate. And, you know, the news, of course, has to be thrilling and the news has to be breathless and the news has to be dangerous. But the fact is that the people come through. The fact is that a vaccine within a year is incredible. I've just trademarked a phrase called no normal because we're not going back to normal and there is no new normal. That phrase is an moron. You have to get used to no normal. There'll be turmoil. There'll be a disruption. There'll be volatility. And all that's good uh, because as society and people get more and more sophisticated, we can expect more and more of that. And so I think that I call this a great cleansing, you know, and, mm, and the, yeah. the deaths due to COVID are tragic more than needed to be because of bad political judgments. Right. But the fact is that this cleansing has helped business and it's helped individuals understand what's really important and understand what they need to be strong. So I'm very optimistic about the future. And we are in December of last year, I predicted a huge business boom in March, April, May. And here we are. Mm -hmm. So I think the future is bright right now. Do you ever use the word God? Oh, yeah. I'm a practicing Catholic. I'm a lector and a Eucharistic minister. Okay. And uh, I use the word God. I believe in God. And uh, so I'm, it's not a word I'm afraid of. Who is God to you, Alan? Who and where is God? I have no idea. I mean, that's <laughs> what attracted me to Catholicism. I, I heard it 15 years or so ago is that in the middle of the liturgy, they say, let us proclaim the mystery of our faith. And I think if any faith can admit 
the mystery, that's very confident, really. Mm, yes, I agree. I simply know that this, there are two fairy tales as far as I'm concerned. You know, one is that God created heaven and earth and created light and created man and woman and then rested. Second fairy tale is the Big Bang Theory, that first there was nothing, then there was something, then it exploded. I have no idea what that means. And I don't feel either, you know. So we have to get used to the fact that we're living in a, in a universe of, of huge mystery. They said to Einstein, you know, look, you've proved there are universal laws. He said, I have, but the question is who made the laws? Usually there's a question that I ask at the end of the interview. I'll ask now. It seems like a good place, to, a good moment to ask. What are three things about life you know for sure as of today? I know for sure that we're all going to die. I know for sure that we have tremendous control, that there's external control and internal control. And we have more internal control than we like to admit to. And we tend to give up control. We tend to give our control away. But we capture it, which is one of the reasons I wrote Our Legacy is Now. And the third thing about life is that it's about love. And if you can't learn to love uh, other people, uh, circumstances, animals, whatever, then you're probably wasting your time. So you wrote the book, Your Legacy is Now. Life is not a search for meaning from others. It is a creation of meaning for yourself. So how did you become a writer? My initial questions. And talk to me about the main inspiration and intention of writing your book. Well, I began writing uh, in grammar school. You know, I had a, I was from the inner city. We were very poor. But the grammar schools back then were very good. Teaching was a lofty position. And we respected teachers. And we, you know, they didn't take any nonsense. So I learned to read and write. And I started writing because I, I loved language and expressing myself that way. And in high school, I became editor of the student newspaper, which was very rewarding. And then in college, I became editor of the college newspaper. And we won eight awards. And so writing stood me in good stead. And I always wrote on the side. But then in 1985, when I was fired uh, from my job heading a consulting firm, I looked around and there were 250,000 consultants or so in the country. And I said, how do I stand out? And I believe that. You don't improve by correcting weaknesses. You improve by building on strengths. And so I spoke and wrote, spoke and wrote. And I started writing my first books. And uh, I wrote three books about my consulting expertise, which got me Fortune 500 clients. And then I wrote a book called Million Dollar Consulting, which has been on the shelves for 30 years. And this year, 2021, is coming out in its sixth edition, which is unprecedented. And I've written uh, over 50 books and about eight further editions, and they're in 15 languages. And so uh, here I am. I am a writer. What is that about writing that you love most? I love the intellectual challenge of trying to get uh, the message you want to convey to people in an entertaining and brief form. You know, the problem with most speakers and most writers is that instead of telling people what they need to know, they tell them everything that they know. They don't understand brevity and they don't understand wit. So I try to make it entertaining, uh, but also very useful and pragmatic. I love the combination. It sounds very creative to me. And speaking of creativity, there's um, a question I have here about the creativity, vulnerability, and, and competition. You talk about these three components, living in this uh, a legacy or a meaningful life. Talk to me about competition, actually, uh, healthy competition. What does it look like? Well, healthy competition means that you want to get better. And so a lot of people have healthy competition with themselves. They want to do better than they did last time, which is fine. A competition becomes unhealthy when you're not happy until you're the very best. 
you know, I call it T-I-A-B-B, which means there is always a bigger boat. Yeah, and okay. <laughs> that, you know, is fruitless. And so, you know, Paul Allen from, I guess, um, Microsoft and the Sultan of Brunei, you know, would try to each get a bigger yacht, you know, 300 and something feet. It's pointless. Who cares? You can't even see them from land. So I think the competition that makes you better and challenges yourself uh, is fine, but not when it becomes corrosive and destructive. And, you know, there's also fact that people sometimes can be unwittingly very, very destructive because somebody will perform well in school or on the athletic field or whatever it is, and somebody will say, that was excellent. Of course, not as good as your sister, but excellent. Um, so healthy competition, that is so interesting. The word competition, I tend to use collaboration more than competition. The two different things, though, aren't they? Right. They sound different. You're right. Yeah. You, well, you have to compete. I mean, the, the capitalism and democracy really are about competition. And competition is not a pejorative word, it's a healthy word. Collaboration is a different kind of word. It's fine to collaborate, but there are some things that, uh, you know, let's face it, there's a reason they keep scoring in athletic competitions, just find out who won. Even the Olympics, you know, they raise the flag of the winner and they keep a medal count in the Olympics, which is supposed to be just for the love of the sport. So competition is healthy as long as it's not extreme. You know, competition that's unhealthy is extremism. Maybe what it is for me is just trying to do the best for myself for just to feel better or to help others the best way I can but without comparing myself to anyone, which you also mentioned in your book. Comparison is not a, a healthy thing to do. And from your perspective, is comparison ever needed? Well, comparison is needed if you want perspective. When some people tell me that, you know, they can't do something, I tell them, well, has anyone ever done this anytime, anywhere? And they'll say, well, yeah. And I'll say, well, is that person remotely like you? And they say, well, yeah. And I say, then why can't you do it? Yeah. And so yeah. we need comparisons in life to give us perspective because without perspective, we're lost. We don't know if we're doing well and not doing well and so forth. So, you know, I don't think competition or comparisons or, you know, looking at how others are doing is at all destructive or negative. I think it's very positive because we need to accommodate where we are in life. And I don't think we could just saying, you know, I'm happy, I'm peaceful. It doesn't matter what else is going on. That's an isolationist mentality. Yeah, in the way it is, you're right. Um, yeah, that resonates true to me too. Like uh, when you say that, yeah, holding this space for everything, just being in that place of openness, it just makes sense to me. The word happy, that's another word that I try not to use that often. For some reason, I use joy instead. Do you differentiate happiness from joy? And if you do, what is happiness to you? Happiness and joy to me are the same thing. And happiness is interesting. I'm, I collaborate with uh, a psychology professor up at uh, Harvard named Dan Gilbert, who wrote Stumbling on Happiness. And he's spoken for me at one of my events. He's a great, great guy. And what we're talking about is the fact, what he talks about primarily is the fact that a synthetic happiness, that is happiness we create by saying, you know, well, I was fired, I told you earlier, and I could tell you that getting fired was the best thing that ever happened to me, or I wouldn't be where I am today. And some people will say, well, you know, when I broke my leg skiing, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. And, you know, when they didn't show up for the date, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. That's synthetic happiness. And his research has shown that people who engage in that are as happy as people with traditional happiness, like a wedding or a birthday, or um, some great event, a promotion. So I think that happiness is something that we can create for ourselves. But I'll, I will tell you this, uh, we have no right to create happiness or wealth 
or we have no right to consume happiness or wealth without creating it. And so we have an obligation to create happiness and wealth for others if we intend to consume it ourselves. Yeah, I love that, Alan. What a beautiful message. It's a message of responsibility, isn't it? Taking responsibility for your own life. That's an empowering one. Thank you for saying that with a lot of confidence. Mm-hmm. Um, another point, I have a lot of uh, points here that you sent to me, is the seven biases that can get in the way of living this meaningful life or leaving this uh, positive legacy. Talk to me about those biases. Well, for example, uh, if your bias is that the other person who disagrees with you is somehow inferior, you're never have, going to have a positive life, uh, really, because that's what's resulted in our polarization today. It's fine for people to disagree. It's even fine for people to disagree strongly, not yeah. violently, strongly. Yeah. But the problem too often is that people don't just disagree. They engage in this moral narcissism right. that if you agree with me, you're simply not as good as I am. And of course, that's patently untrue. So there's a bias like that. Another bias is that, you know, wealth uh, brings happiness. Uh, And the fact is that most people don't even understand what wealth is. Wealth is about discretionary time. It's about having the the agency to go where you want, when you want, uh, and not because somebody else is telling you to or prohibiting you from doing that. So these are the kinds of biases that get in people's way, and they don't even realize it. They get ignored in these myths. I'll give you a crazy example, but... When I was young, uh, we were told that after we ate lunch, we had to wait an hour before we went in the water. Right. Yes. Yeah, I remember that. Right? So we'd sit on the beach, and at 58 minutes, we'd say, "Let's we'd say, no, no, we have another 90 seconds, you know? Because uh, yeah. otherwise you'll get cramps and you'll drown. And of course, this is absolutely scientifically untrue. But we lived with that for years and years and years. And so you have to look around, if you think about spirituality, which you raised earlier, and say, what are the myths, what are the biases you're living under which constrain us? us from achieving real real meaning in life. Oh, wow. Yeah, those we're talking about false beliefs and limiting beliefs, right? That we have so many, uh, those values. Uh, it makes sense to me. The judgment, that's the only one I'm pounding upon here. <laughs> yeah, I try not to be judgmental, but in competition, those two things, it might be just words because at an unconscious level, we're always uh, trying to improve. We don't even know exactly what's happening. And uh, that's what we call healing. I call healing. Well, let me ask you something, yeah, Valerie. Yeah. Suppose you're in a restaurant and um, it's a family restaurant and um, somebody at another table in the course of just conversation at that table, very loudly keeps repeating profanity. Wouldn't your judgment be that they're inappropriate and rude and somebody needs to talk to them? Or would your judgment be, well, let me understand, they probably have a reason for uh, shouting profanities in the restaurant? The first thing I would do, because my practice would be that piece of self-awareness, why am I bothered by these people talking around me? What is that that bothered me? So the question would be actually, toward myself, not others. Everything that happens is always about my perception and my, because that's the only thing I can control anyway. There are children in the restaurant, it's offensive language, it's vulgar language, and it's disturbing people's meals. Don't you think that's important? Yes, it is overall, collectively, absolutely. Everyone agrees, almost like an agreement. We all agree here that we should not have these people around us making this noise and using this language. So it's more of an agreement, the societal collective agreement. Excuse me for interrupting. It's a judgment that the behavior is incorrect. You can't get around that. It's a judgment that the behavior is incorrect and something should be done about it. So, and I would like to think that you wouldn't need unanimity in that restaurant, that if you judge something to be 
inappropriate uh, or in danger. Or uh, if you had children present, it was completely inappropriate for them to be listening to this, that uh, you would take action. And so that's why judgment gets such a bad rap. Uh, You know, sometimes you can't wait around uh, and take a vote. Now, I understand your perspective. Absolutely. And I, I know how can this situation can just get somebody really worked up. And yeah, and of course, we have to take measures. We have to do something. Like at that level, if somebody's trying to attack children, of course, we call the police. We do what we can. But it's uh, when it comes to uh, reflection, understanding emotions and, you know, the way we navigate the world, it's a practice for me to just go back to myself and ask, what is about this situation that's bothering me? Why? Why? And what, what's happening within? So because this whole life thing to me, it's all about perspective, perception. It's not good or bad. What's happening? It's a judgment, like you said. We're using the word judgment. We're just judging as it is something bad, but we, it's just how we respond and how we see that that really matters. It's you. It's your own world, how you view the outside that matters. Well, I understand your point. But I would tell you that there are some things that don't bother me. And if I say, well, this isn't bothering me, but nonetheless, I have to do something about it because just because it doesn't bother me doesn't mean it's right and doesn't mean it's not bothering other people. Uh, and we see that in some forms of aggression, for example. Well, this doesn't pertain to me. Yes, but it's inappropriate and it's bad and it's dangerous. And so I have to take action even though I'm not directly involved. So, you know, there's a certain amount of individual judgment that must go on about these things. I agree. Yes. Taking action when it's needed. Yeah, absolutely. It's more at the level of taking action or not. It's important that we know where we are coming from, why something's bothering us so much, what is exactly about us and why we attract in that too, why we are doing that restaurant in the first place. (laughs) So it's almost to me that everything it's happening because we are in a way attracting the situation. So that's what I'm really trying to understand more about this life here, navigating this reality. Are we attracting the people that we talk to, what we do and, and how we do it, or is the other way around? Well, we're not attracting people who curse in restaurants, right? And that's, so that's a fact that, that needs to be taken care of. And so all I'm saying to you is yeah. that I don't, you can apply a blanket rule to these things. And have, we have to have the judgment to know when appropriate action is necessary and when it's not. Yes, right. And have the courage, yeah, or the energy to take those actions. Yeah, I agree. Right, yeah. Absolutely. So we're almost at the end, and I do have a few more questions for you. I love some of the phrase you have here, some of the message you have about perfectionism. It's another one. Don't strive for perfection, uh, which kills excellence and leads to procrastination. Strive for success, not perfection. Chase happiness, not money. So these are very important message. I love another one you have here is be different. I think I'm paraphrasing you here now. Be different and true to yourself. Fight for what you believe in. Perhaps I would not use the word fight. <laughs> I know it always goes back to nonviolence from within, just using the words that it can hurt less. That's what it is. Do you want to make a comment about or elaborate a bit more about perfectionism? Well, I love words, you know, and I, I uh, but I do think you're over the edge there. I mean, <laughs> yeah. some people say I love to fight, right? And yeah, so yeah. <laughs> see, fighting is something sometimes you do internally. Fighting is a metaphor. Some people say I'm fighting to win this race. I'm fighting to get into college. Uh, that's a fine word in that respect. And some people use love, you know, very mm, yeah. superficially. Right. And so it's, it's true. an appropriate word. 
But to get back to perfectionism, uh, no plane ride you ever took, no car you've been in, no meal you've ever had, uh, no relationship you've had is perfect. It's an illusory kind of pursuit. And when people pursue perfection, meaning they write something down, but then they change it 500 times, they don't want to finish a project, there are some errors, nothing ever gets done. And procrastination is fear. And it's interesting because procrastination is the fear that if you actually completed something, you would be critiqued more harshly for completing it than you would be critiqued for not doing it at all. And people are so afraid of being critiqued for a final result because it's not perfect, they don't move at all. And we see procrastination all over the place, and it's one of the biggest impediments to people's success. Yeah, what came to mind was a question that I often ask some of my guests, or maybe most of my guests, I'll ask you too. Do you believe in the practice of unconditional self-love? I do. I think we have to love ourselves if we're going to love someone else. Now, let me just make sure we're talking about the same thing. When you say unconditional, it doesn't mean that I'm perfect. It doesn't mean that I don't make mistakes, that I'm not a sinner and so forth. But unconditional self-love means I forgive myself. It means that I acknowledge my errors. I apologize for my mistakes. I improve where I've done something that can't be done again in the future and so on. If that's unconditional self-love, then that's fine. Uh, it's yeah. not like a dog, you know, who gives you unconditional love no matter what you do. <laughs> we are using the word love there. So, yes. Yeah. And before I ask that question, maybe I have to ask another one, the more fundamental one. What is love to you? Right. To understand what love is first. Yeah. It's all about love, not those other ideas of selfishness and so on. So I have a few more questions for you, the ending questions. But before I ask them, would you like to add anything or read a passage in your book? Well, I, no, I'd just like to thank you for having me here today. And I, I'd like to remind people that really, you know, when, when a business is to be sold, the owner often says, well, I have to increase its valuation and starts to do that a month before the owner wants to sell it, which will never work. You increase the valuation of a business today, you make profits and eventually you sell it for a lot of money, hopefully. And the same thing with a person. Your legacy is not, you know, to be created the day you die and people are eulogizing you. Your legacy should be created now, no matter what your age is, every day. Uh, and if you look at life like that, I think you'll be a much more positive, productive person. I agree a thousand times with that. Freedom. What is the meaning of freedom to you, Alan? What is to be free? Well, freedom means you have latitude of action. Uh, freedom means you're empowered. Freedom means you have... In fact, uh, the ability to fail without, you know, violent repercussion. You have the ability to learn. I think freedom, John Jay, I think, said this during, you know, the American Revolution, you know, your freedom stops at my nose. And so I think that uh, we have the freedom to be ourselves. We have the freedom to contribute. Uh, and so long as we don't cause harm to others, that freedom is significant. What was the hardest lesson to learn about yourself in life as of today? I think... Um, what I finally learned, uh, probably not until my 40s or 50s, was that I don't have to keep proving myself to people every day. I can relax. I can be comfortable in my own skin. Uh, people will accept me as I am in any way that they choose to. So I think not having to impress people takes a giant weight off. You know, when you're young, you think you know everything. And as you get older, you realize you know nearly nothing. Yeah, thank you so much for your message of authenticity. And my last question is, if you knew you would die soon, meaning leave in the body, would you make any change or do anything in a different way? It's a good question, but uh, I don't think I would. It's not that my life is perfect or that I've, I've, <laughs> that I'm, uh, you know, feeding a sterling existence, yeah. but 
I like to take each day as it comes, and I don't see any way around that. And uh, before we say goodbye, I wanted to thank you for your presence, your authenticity, your knowledge, wisdom, and the work you do trying to help us to understand and live this legacy, this meaningful life every day, every moment, and not to wait until after we are dead and not, no longer here. So that's a beautiful message. Well, thank you, Valerie. I really enjoyed it. Uh, thank you so much for having me here. And before we say goodbye, where can we find more information about you, your books, products, services, and future projects, Alan? Uh, Alan Weiss, A-L-A-N-W-E-I-S-S dot com. Uh, there are free, uh, there's free text, free audio, free video. I have a podcast weekly, The Uncomfortable Truth. You can also join me on Twitter and LinkedIn and Facebook. And uh, all of that is complimentary. All of it is free. You can subscribe to the newsletters there. So thank you for asking. Wonderful. Thank you. And we'll talk soon. Bye for now, Alan. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Dr. Alan Weiss and his work, please visit alanweiss.com. more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.